How did the early church grow from a small, unknown group of Jews to a staggeringly influential force for good in the Roman Empire? They had no political power, rarely traveled outside their own nation, and had little to no money. How did the early Christian community spread? They bought the freedom of slaves. They cared for the poor and sick, and they gave their lives with joy and gladness for their Savior. In short, their lives were more attractive and compelling than anything anyone had ever seen. They went against the grain. They stood up for what they believed in. They loved like they meant it. They were countercultural. How can we be the same? Living, giving, and loving differently. everyone. My name is Galen Washington. I'm a, an elder here at this church. I have the privilege of serving alongside the amazing leaders and teams here. And uh, as you heard Morgan, our lead uh, pastor, say they're uh, out of town supporting a, a church plant. And so uh, I have the high honor of wrapping up the series we've been doing on living counterculturally. And so um, I want to get right into my opening scripture found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, 44 through 47. It reads, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone who had need. So continuing daily with one accord, please say one accord, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let me pray to get us started. Father, I thank you for being here with us now. I thank you for giving us eyes and ears to hear and see what you're doing. I thank you for moving and stirring deep within our innermost being. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for those of you who haven't had a chance to, to hear all of the message series uh, this month, I urge you to take a listen to the podcast. Morgan's done a great job of unpacking some of our values, who we long to be, and how God is shaping this local body. And this morning, I want to continue our discussion on culture and values. And I have the, the privilege of being very transparent with you. You guys, those of you who know me, know I don't pontificate. I try to shoot you straight. And so I want to peel back the covers a little bit and and expose some more of our heart and who we long to be. So I want to take a hard look at how the power of godly unity enables Christ followers to maximize our potential and how do we thrive as a local body. The title of my message is Divine Unity. Sons and daughters live counter-culturally. Before I get into the heart of my message, I want to share a quick story with you. It has to do with how I first met our lead pastor, Morgan Stevens. You know, this church was going through some tumultuous times uh, about five to six years ago, and we were hunting for a lead pastor. And so my wife and I were up-and-coming leaders in the church at that time. We were serving, and we were invited to meet Morgan and his, and his wife. And so we went to the park at the appointed meeting place at the appointed meeting time, And I saw Morgan from afar, and I kind of spied him out. I walked up to him. I said, hey, Morgan, my name is Galen Washington. How you doing? 
I said, you know, are you excited about the prospects of moving to Austin? Morgan paused, blinked at me, and then he said, if I wasn't excited about the prospects, I wouldn't be here. My immediate reaction was, on the outside, was, oh, that's nice. On the inside, I was saying, oh, really? It's going to be like that. Really? Now, if you want to hear how this story concludes, you need to stay around for the rest of the message. This would be a topical study, so I'm going to be reviewing a number of different scriptures. I know some of you love exegetical and Aramaic and Hebrew, and I love all that stuff too. But because I'm wrapping up the series, I'm going to use a number of illustrations to make my larger point. This morning, we're going to examine what divine unity is, what it's not, how do we walk in it. Those are the three points we're going to look at today. Let's get into our first point. There was a word that we read in the book of Acts in that, in that opening scripture. It was, uh, there were a couple of words, one accord, and that word in the Greek is hamathamadon. That word occurs 12 times in the entire Bible, 10 of those times it occurs in the book of Acts, which is to say that there was something very special going on because that word means one, uh, with one mind, with one accord, with one passion. It's a compound of two different Greek words. One word is rush along, and the other is in unison. So clearly something very special was happening within the church, the early church. It was noteworthy. It was recorded. And it was uh, spoken about ten times in the book of Acts. The scriptures make this point very clear. Divine unity enables believers to change the world. I want you guys to just pause and think about that. Divine unity, not earthly unity, enables believers to change the world. How can we as believers live, give, and love differently? That's the, the tagline on this series, right? It's very difficult for us to walk this out when we face so much pressure from the world. Just take a look at the last midterm election. What do we hear? We saw Christ followers. I'm not talking about the world right now and non-believers. I'm talking about Christ followers saying things like, we won and they lost. Or, can you believe those turkeys won and we lost? Now listen, I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with political victories. That's not what I'm saying. I'm placing emphasis on when believers celebrate outcomes that were achieved outside of divine unity. It's almost as if to say that our hopes rest in the political and governmental systems of this world. As if to say our salvation and the problems that we face are going to be solved by carnal earthly systems. But I love what Paul says in uh, Romans 8.19. He says in the Amplified, for even the whole creation, you guys say the whole creation, creation. all nature waits expectantly and longs earnestly for God's sons, 
I'm going to insert daughters in there too, his sons and his daughters, to be made known, waits for the revealing, the disclosing of their sonship. Paul is saying every system, every system, all of nature, everything, can be healed by and influenced by and impacted by sons and daughters of the king, which is who we are. It's who we're called to be. Now, I'm going to wrestle with you guys some this morning, and I'm okay with that, because we are indoctrinated and slammed on a daily basis with how we're supposed to think about what it means to be a united people. And so I have a very challenging job this morning to stir with some of your paradigms, and I'm going to have to fight with some of these paradigms. I'm asking you to open up your heart, and don't listen to me. Listen to what the Father may want to say to you through me. Now, I have this discussion with some of my brothers and sisters all the time in this church. And sometimes they look at me and they say, Galen, if this is so true, if the church is supposed to be this united force that heals the world, why don't I see more of it? And my response is because we, as believers, in many ways, have learned to fight, to think, to compete, and to solve problems according to the normal, carnal systems of this world. We have. We've been trained to examine problems and respond to those problems in ways that the king of kings probably wouldn't do it. Not every time, but frequently we do that. And we are therefore in many ways divided. We are not in agreement. I want to take a look at Matthew 18, 18 through 19. And it reads, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree, please say agree, Agree. on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That word agree in the Greek is symphoneo, means to sound together or to be in accord. That's where we get our English word symphony. Now, some hear that scripture and they say, Galen, you're using that scripture incorrectly, because that scripture applies to resolving conflicts within the body. But I tell you this, from Genesis to Revelation, you find evidence that God is interested in blessing unity. If you look at uh, Psalm 133, it's a beautiful psalm. You guys write that down and take a look at it if if you don't remember what it's about. It talks about unity of the brethren being like fine, precious, anointed oil, that covers the head of the priest, washes over his robe, and saturates him fully. And then it goes on to say that God commands a blessing in that kind of unity. That's what we as believers need to tap into, that power that comes through godly unity. We find our best definition of divine unity by taking some time to examine the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. These words that I'm about to share with you, they reverberate, they echo throughout all Scripture, if you listen. The Father says to the Son, Son, I love you. You are precious to me. But your sacrifice is necessary. The Son says to the Father, Daddy, I love you. I know this is the only way 
It is my greatest joy to complete my assignment. The son says to the spirit, once it is finished, I need you to remain with the saints until I return. Give them what they need to win. The spirit says to the father and the son, I will empower the saints and remain with them. I will comfort them and remind them of your love until you return. You hear a beautiful melody when you meditate on and contemplate what must go on in the Godhead. Now, there are six key elements that I want to teach on for a minute. And if you've got your pen or pencil and some paper or your phone, I urge you to write these down. These are elements that we as believers should be evaluating ourselves against as we examine our fruit and how well we manage our earthly relationships. Number one, there should be a desire to please God above all else. Number two, there should be agape, godly, unconditional love, a constant elevation of others' needs. Number three, faithfulness, a track record for keeping one's word, which builds trust. Number four, total alignment, clarity, and passion regarding the assignment at hand. Do any of you here think that Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua, was confused about the assignment that he had? No, there was zero confusion. Do you think the Spirit was confused about what his role was in the the, uh, body's life after Jesus' body was broken and he was resurrected? Absolutely not. Do you think the Father was confused about the assignment? Absolutely not. There was total alignment, total clarity. Number five, a clear understanding of roles and responsibilities. That is, who's on first? Who's doing what? And number six, crucially important, trust. An uncompromising, unfailing, I'm going to say that again, uncompromising, unfailing belief and conviction in your partner's motives and dedication to seeing the task done. There are other ways that you could look at this, but these are clearly discernible as you study the scriptures. These are six elements of divine unity. Many people love to cherry-pick these when they're evaluating their life and their relationships because it's easier to do that. We say things like, I've got, I've got divine or I've got a trust with my, my brother, but I don't know exactly what role my brother's playing. Or, I believe in my friend but I'm not so sure that they're going to be faithful with the assignment that they have. It takes all six to be in full effect for us to walk in divine unity. Please get this. There is zero disunity in the Godhead. Zero. Nothing ever has and nothing ever will come between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now I realize some of you are thinking, what about when people just don't act right? You know, people can act a fool sometimes. What, what, what do we do when people just don't act right? My response is, let's not worry about that. Let's focus on what it is we can manage today, the relationships that we have right now. Let's start there. Let's start with this relationship here and here. Let's start there. Between us and the Godhead, let's start there. As I progress, I urge you, to examine every one of your relationships through this lens. You know, I I have the privilege in this church of beating the drum over and over and over again, 
relationships first. Relationships first. Everything else will follow. Sometimes people look at me like, dude, can you talk about something else? My response is, God has given me this assignment. This is a role that I have to play. I have so much more that I want to say, but the Father's made it clear. Focus on this first. Focus on this because your relationships are what, what will take you to the next level. In 2015, we're going to need healthy relationships in this church, healthy relationships in our marriages, healthy relationships on the campus. Let me ask you a question. When were we as believers ever encouraged to exchange our birthright for a bowl of soup? Of course, I'm making a reference to Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25. You see the interaction. What happened? Esau had a natural problem. He was hungry, and he didn't regard his God-given birthright as the firstborn son. He was so hungry, he was willing to exchange that which was given to him by God to solve a natural problem of hunger. We as believers tend to do the same thing when we take our God-given gifts, the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the wisdom of God, and we say, that problem over there is too big for that stuff. I'm going to discard it, and I'm going to fight just like the world fights. Listen, guys. There are not only God-sized holes in people. There are God-sized holes in organizations and institutions and governments, and our job as believers is to be busy about providing God solutions for those problems. Now, I've tried to give you a definition of what divine unity looks like. Now I want to press in a little bit more and examine what divine unity does not look like. I want to start with 2 Corinthians 10, 12-15. And it reads, not that we dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Now, Paul is responding in 2 Corinthians to a bunch of attack on his character and on his ministry. But in his response, we can pick up on a great nugget. Here's the nugget. If we as believers manage well what the Father has put in our hands meaning our race, our gender, our lot in life, our skills, our abilities, um, our intellect, all of that. If we manage it well and we do it as unto God, then we will see an expansion of his kingdom in areas where we have not directly labored. What Paul is saying is, when you win, I win. When they win, we win. You juxtapose that with the, the, the notion that you hear believers saying, we won and they lost. And you can see how contrary that is to the heart of God. But it's very difficult to focus on what we have when we're compelled to look at what others have. 
Now, I, I did a study uh, on some research that was done about Facebook envy. Facebook envy. And in this study, there were two German uh, universities that got together. There are a whole bunch of other studies on this too, but this particular study, they looked at what a population of people, how they responded when they examined the lives of others. And what they found is that people got depressed, and some of them almost got suicidal, because they were watching other people's victories and successes, and they immediately reflected inwardly and said, I'm not enough. Now, I'll admit, I have also suffered from Facebook envy. <laughs> I have. My wife and I have been married for 20 years. And what do I do? I go and I, I take a picture of us, I write a love, le love letter to her, and I post it on Facebook. <laughs> After five days, you know how many likes I had? Five likes. Some of you other popular couples, Vince and Megan will go on their little date, and they'll go on a cupcake date, and they'll take a cupcake selfie, and they'll post it, and they get 5,000 likes. I'm joking, but I'm not. And I promise you, I'll return to Facebook if you start clicking on some of my stuff and liking some of my comments. I'll come back. But I'll highlight this to share with you guys the pressure that we face. We face so much pressure to shift our eyes away from what the Father has placed in our hands today. I, would, I wish I could say this over and over and over again. Do you realize how powerful we will be when we embrace that which the Father has given us? And we say, I love this life you've given me. I celebrate it. I relish every ounce of creativity and skill you put in me. Now, Father, show me how to maximize this thing right now. Do you know what we could do together? It's, it's very difficult to stay in our own lanes, but here's the point. God designed boundaries. And did you know that the Godhead actually adheres to those boundaries? Imagine, if you will, Jesus looks to the Father And he says, I ain't going down there to get my body all busted up. Why don't you send the Spirit first? Why does the Spirit get to be the one to finish the work that I started, huh, Yahweh? <laughs> Can you guys imagine Jesus saying something like that? No. What did he do? He ran to the cross. He embraced. That was his joy. That was his full joy. And what's worse Many believers, we can struggle so much with this feeling of not focusing on this and focusing on that, that we begin to not only envy our brothers and sisters, we actually experience feelings of schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Now, if you're German or you have German skills, please forgive me for butchering the word, but it's a combo word, and, and there are two words that it's combined with. It's called harm and joy. You guys know what schadenfreude is. You know what it is. It's that warm, gooey feeling you get when you see someone that you've envied get taken down a peg. You guys got a little quiet on me. I understand. But this ought not be the way believers work, right? But it's pressure that we feel. We all feel it. Let's just be real. 
We all feel these things. It's so important that we learn to war against them. War against them, not let them take root in our hearts. Now, we envy, and we can covet, and we can even celebrate the downfall of our brothers and sisters, which puts us in a contrary position to actually elevating and celebrating the work of our brothers and sisters, those who co-labor in the faith with us. I want to take a look at 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 9. It says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in all the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have only ascribed thousands. Now what more can, they ha- can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. I love the scripture and I love 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. It's a beautiful book that juxtaposes two different men. David was clearly the better man. He was better than Saul in so many ways. Why could Saul not celebrate and elevate David? Why was he not okay being number two? What was it in him? And some would say it was just jealousy. Saul was struggling with not being the number one. Let me ask you guys a question. Any, are there any Trekkies in here? Any Star Trek fans? At least give me one hand. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. How many of you know, I'm going old school now, the original Star Trek. How many of you know Jim Kirk was the captain, Mr. Spock was the perpetual number two, but Mr. Spock was really the man. Mr. Spock was okay with being number two. He was always number two. And even when he got elevated to being number one, he found a way to work himself back into being number two. But here's the point. He was so fantastic at being a number two that when the ship and crew's lives were at at stake and he needed to step up and be number one in that moment, he could do that. Why? Because he was focused on being who he was designed to be. So frequently, we long to be number one or we're number 50 and we wish we were number 25. Here's my point. When believers can rest and know that we are God's number one choice to manage and steward the work, the life, and the skills that he's given us today, then we can walk in harmony and peace in ways that would shock this world. But here's the challenge, though. When we don't do that, we secretly envy our brothers and sisters and quietly root for their downfall. Now, I know some of you here probably think, I would never, ever root for the downfall of my brother and sister. I want to pick back up the story about me and Morgan real quick. 
So where was I? Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Is that how it's going to be, Morgan? Okay. Okay. From that day on, what did I do? In my heart, I said, you know what? I'm not going to try to hurt Morgan, but I'm certainly not going to try to support him. I ain't going to do nothing to hurt the man. I'll just be quiet. And one day I was praying, and I could feel the weight of God's displeasure on me. He was displeased with my, my, my heart's position. The agreement that I made with darkness is really what it was. And I started to argue with God, like, what do you want from me? I didn't do anything to the guy. I'm not trying to hurt him. And I could hear in my spirit, I've put so much in you, Galen, to elevate men around you and women around you, and you're not doing it. And in, in so doing, you're actually hurting him. So what did I do? I cried and repented, dusted myself off, and then I went and I spoke with Morgan. I re- apologized to him. Listen, the time that Morgan and, and Carrie were going through was one of the most tumultuous times of their lives. They were being prodded and poked by so many different members trying to evaluate their, their ability to steward this house. He didn't need another set of eyes doing that. He needed to be received and accepted. And I didn't understand that or I didn't have it in me at the time to do it. I told you guys I was, I was going to peel back the covers a little bit and tell you about our leadership team, right? This is a, a milestone in our relationship. When I apologized and repented and asked him for his forgiveness, and then I started to support him and celebrate him, our relationship has flourished. And the leadership team as a whole, our relationship is flourishing. And that's a blessing. Let me give you a clue on what it looks like if you struggle to celebrate the victories of your brothers and sisters. Sometimes you hear someone accomplish something great, and it's someone you know. And if the best you can offer up is, mm, that's nice, or good for them, that might be an indication that you have a challenge celebrating your brothers and sisters. Listen, I celebrate Brett. Elder Galen has discipled his dozens. But Pastor Brett, his thousands. (laughs) Praise God. Praise God. There's a difference between me watching quietly and kind of folding my arms and saying, you go do your work. Go ahead. And me jumping in with both feet and helping Brett be the best Brett that Brett can be. That's who we're called to be as as a group of believers. I'm really trying to wrestle with how we look at how we celebrate one another's work. Think about what that looks like in the Godhead. Do you think that when the Father parted the Red Seas on behalf of Moses and the children of Israel, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit sat back with their arms folded? Big deal, Yahweh! No! They celebrated each other's work. And what did did that kind of unity achieve? Only everything. What did it enable them to give? Just eternal life and intimacy with the Father, that's all. Listen, this is what we're striving for. This is what we're trusting God for in this church. It's a culture that infiltrates every relationship in this house. It penetrates every interaction. Now, I hope that you guys are willing to be submitted to that. Is there anything wrong with this, guys? Is there anything wrong with that sentiment? 
If it rubs you the wrong way, it's possible that you may need to evaluate your, your heart's priorities because this is a godly desire. We long for this kind of unity. Now, all this sounds easier said than done. How can we practically walk this out? What does that look like? There are so many ways I can describe it, but I, I don't have time for that. I just want to point out a couple. The first is we start by not focusing on unity. Now, I've just spent the last 20 or 30 minutes or so encouraging you to have a heart of unity. And now I'm telling you we don't start by focusing on unity. Some of you may be thinking, would you please make up your mind? My mind is made up. Let me try to explain. I want to show you a quote from A.W. Tozer. And it reads, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What is Tozer's point? He's essentially saying the submitted life, the submitted believer who disciplines their heart to call upon Christ as Lord and Savior, when we do that, the natural byproduct of that is divine unity. The second point is divine unity cannot be achieved by force. It occurs naturally and supernaturally as believers remain earnestly engaged in the process of being made more like the Christ. Let me put it a different way. It's almost as if we're all cucumbers. I said cucumbers. Yes, I did. It's like we're cucumbers. And our goal, my goal, is to become a pickle. The cucumber has to stay in the brine until the cucumber ain't a cucumber any longer. What's my point? Transformation occurs by staying in the process of being sanctified and renewed moment by moment. <laughs> unity and the divine unity that, that I'm preaching on right now, that will come as we collectively as a body find ourselves submitted moment by moment to the process. And I'm being redundant for a reason, because I know this is a struggle. Many of us don't know what that really looks like. It starts with gospel community, a great church where you can get great words and great teachings. It starts by asking yourself every morning, how am I reflecting my sonship or as a daughter in Christ? Do I understand that I'm a daughter or a son first before I'm anything else? And what's keeping me from experiencing and walking in that reality? It starts there. 
And the more we as individuals achieve that, you're going to see a kind of unity that this world is going to be amazed to see. Amen? I'm going to close with my final scripture. It's Colossians 3.15. It's just a portion of that scripture. And it reads, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And what I want to do right now is just pray for anyone here, and you guys can stay seated. You know, we talk about this corporate unity, but believers, we first must start by finding unity within our soul, peace within our soul. And we experience that by receiving the peace of Christ in our hearts. I meet a lot of Christians who struggle with doubt, with confusion, being double-minded. And the way that that spills over into family and relationship, it's, it's quite evident. So what I want to do is just pray. If there's anyone here who you know, you know what, this, all this unity sounds great, but there's something in my soul that makes me very uncomfortable about just me. And so how can I be unified with the people when I feel fragmented as an individual? If that's you, don't even raise your hands. I'm going to pray for you. And you know who you are. God knows who you are. I'm praying that we individually will be made whole. Whole. You are all sons and daughters of the living God. That's who you are. And I'm going to speak that over you right now. Father, I thank you that we are all sons and daughters of the living God. I thank you, Father, that we don't find our identity in performance or accomplishment. We find it in your grace and in your love. I thank you now, Father, that each one of us receives our sonship and our our identity as daughters. I thank you for every father in this house. I thank you, Father, for blessing them with the mindset to steward their families well. I thank you, Father, for every leader in this house, those who are identified and those who are in the process of identifying. Thank you for the work you've given this house, Lord God. It's a mighty work. Now, Father, make us one unit. Galvanize us by your spirit, by the shed blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.